As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. Tim McMaster here with Ken Rosenthal. It is Mailbag Monday. It's the final full week of spring training. That was fast. The music is kind of coming to a stop in this wild game of musical chairs and we've been playing since the end of the lockout. No one has kept better track of that game of musical chairs than Ken. And Ken, now that all the, or for the most part, the big name free agents are all signed, Hopefully you're getting some sleep. I know you're down in Arizona for spring training. So that's kind of where I wanted to start. How has spring, has it been a lot different this year, obviously, than than your spring trainings in the past? Yes, completely different, Tim. And normally what I do every year is start off in Florida for about 10 days, then come home for a week, then head Arizona for maybe 10 to 12 days, go home again, and then end up in Florida, usually trying to look at Fox or teams that are going to be on Fox in the first couple of weeks of the season. This year, obviously, was a little different. And if I used that many days, I probably would have been on the road for more days than actually spring training exists. So what I did was I waited initially to leave because I knew, we all knew, that once the lockout ended and the sport resumed, there would be a transaction frenzy like we've never seen and pretty much that happened so the question then became okay when do i leave do i leave a couple of days into this four or five days six or seven and ultimately i decided on a week ago wednesday and even then there was a lot going on and i felt very uncomfortable leaving home and the reason i say that is because when you go to Florida, you're often on the road a lot, or at least when you do the job the way I do, a national person, you have to go to different camps each day. And Florida is a big state, and you have to drive. And I didn't want to be caught, for instance, on Alligator Alley while Carlos Correa was signing. That wouldn't have been a great outcome. Terrible so, Wi-Fi on Alligator Alley. By the way. <laughs> terrible Wi-Fi. It's not a great situation. So I waited, then I ultimately went down on that Wednesday, and it actually worked out okay. Correa signed... I believe it was that Friday night, really late. And 
I was going from camp to camp, and what I'm doing this spring, as I do every spring, is stop at certain camps and interview players for Fox for use on the pregame shows as the season goes on. I'll interview maybe eight or nine players in a given morning. And it just so happened I was in that area when the Correa thing happened. Now, not for his press conference. I was gone by then. I was on the other side of the state. But Dan Hayes and I combined on that story we did last week, I believe, about how that signing came about. And we had a blast doing that. And since then, I've come to Arizona. I spent about eight or nine days in Florida. I think it was nine. Then came right to Arizona. Did not go home. And finally now, I'm writing the kinds of stories that I really cherish writing overall, and especially in spring training. There was one last week on Jeremy Pena, uh, the guy who was replacing Correa at shortstop for the Astros. That was a fun one to do. I did one on the relationship between Ichiro and Julio Rodriguez, the great Mariners prospect. And then today I wrote about the Angels. And it's more of a normal spring. Now, there are still some free agents unsigned, and we had a pretty big news event today. Albert Pujols returned to the Cardinals. But at the same time, it's a lot slower, and you can actually cover the sport instead of just transactions at this point. And let's face it, the season starts in about 10 days, and the hurricane begins anew. So it's been a fun spring, though a hectic spring. A lot of people in baseball have said, you know what? This is too fast. We need more time. Not just players who definitely need more time, I believe, especially pitchers, but the public relations staffs, the writers, everyone to just kind of get their bearings under them and see everything they need to see. Now, I'm not going to see what I would normally see, but that said, I am just delighted that baseball is back. And I'll say one other thing about the clubhouse access that has been restored for the writers. And I know a lot of fans don't necessarily care how the sausage is made and don't necessarily care whether we get access or not. And some will point out at times, you guys shouldn't even be allowed to bother the players. But those informal conversations that we have in the clubhouse with players, one, they build relationships. Two, they help us come up with stories. And they also enable us or require us in some ways to be accountable to the players that we write about. When you have to show up the next day, it's not so much an issue in spring training, but during the season, when you have to show up after writing something that might be perceived as negative, that's kind of a nice little checks and balances system. And it keeps you in check a little bit. Not that you won't write critically, but you'll certainly have to account for that in person the next day if a player, coach, or manager objects. But let me give you one example of how a clubhouse conversation could lead to so much more. Last week, I was in the Astros clubhouse talking casually with Jose Altuve. Not every situation is an interview. We're just talking. And at one point, I say, hey, how's this kid at shortstop? And he said, that kid's going to be a superstar. And then he explained it. Now, I did not go into Astros camp that day with the intention of writing about Jeremy Pena. But I ended up writing about Jeremy Pena, quite a long story about Jeremy Pena, and it stemmed from that conversation I had with Altuve. So long story short, we as writers are all quite grateful that we're back in the clubhouses, we're masked, the players are not, and it's just a better way to go, much more personal than Zoom conversations, obviously, and it leads to better work. And I know quite a few players have actually, you know, there's been 
sound bites and quotes from them saying, hey, glad to have you guys back. So it's it's not like you guys were let back into the clubhouse and the media was let back in the clubhouse and the players were in there. Oh, here they come. You know, I think in a lot of ways, it's normalcy for them too. And they enjoy those conversations. Not all of them, but but a lot of those guys, like you mentioned, Altuve, enjoy those conversations too. To some people, some players, I should say, I'm sure it is an annoyance and a nuisance that we're in there or whatever. But a lot of players do welcome the in in person. Let me try that again. A lot of players do welcome the in-person contact as opposed to the Zoom. It was difficult for them, too. It was kind of just forced and artificial. And now these natural conversations, they are germinating again. And as I said, where it benefits the reader or the listener is we get better stories out of this. We get to places that ordinarily through a Zoom call we could not get to. This wild spring training has led to some cool moments. You mentioned Albert Pujols, and this wouldn't happen in a normal year, right? Albert Pujols, they announce he's signing with the Cardinals. That very same day, he's announced, takes the field, and gets a standing ovation at spring training. Uh, you don't usually see that. Usually it happens in the winter, and then there's a wait, and then it, it comes about. But but a cool day for, for Cardinals fans, and hopefully a happy ending for Albert Pujols. We'll see how things go down this season in St. Louis. All right, with that, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, we're back to every week, Ken, starting next week with the start of the regular season. You can give us a call, 646-543-7072. You can also email us at tabaseballshow at gmail.com. First question comes through email. It's from Doug. He says, why do players attend their arbitration hearings? Are they required to? From what I understand, an arbitration hearing consists of team representatives listing all the reasons why the player is actually not that good and in no way deserves the money he's asking for. I understand the process is necessary and that it's awkward for the club too, but it's not personal for the club. For the player, it's about this his very worth as a human being or at least as an athlete. Why don't players just stay home and let agents handle it? This is a good question, and I actually asked an agent about this recently and said, hey, do players have to be in the room? And he said, no, they do not have to be there, but they all are. And the reason is you have to think of it almost like a court case. It would be like a defendant not being at a trial. And by being there, the player humanizes it for the panel. They're not just talking about some arbitrary person way off yonder. That guy is sitting right there in front of them. So it does humanize it. And if they aren't there, then the panel might think, well, maybe these guys don't care. So while it's absolutely true, there can be a painful process for players. And I've heard countless stories about the process. It can be really upsetting. And now we're going to have arbitration hearings in the middle of the season, as we did in 95. And that has the potential to cause problems all its own. Now, my understanding is those hearings will largely take place on off days, not on home games, be on the road. They'll try to accommodate the players as best they can, but it's still a really awkward situation. But there is a reason why the players are in the room, and they're the reasons that I just gave you. 
you imagine on a game day, right? Like early in the day, you have to go into a room and your organization tells you your shortcomings and then they expect you to go out on the field that night and throw a great game or hit a home run. I mean, it's kind of kind of wild. Uh, but like you said, they're trying to avoid that. Yeah, in our story that we did, I don't know, it was during the lockout, Jason Stark and I, we wrote about Ben McDonald's arbitration hearing in 1995. It was during the season. He was pitching for the Orioles. It was on a day, the morning of a game, he was going to pitch against Randy Johnson and the great Seattle Mariners teams with Griffey and Edgar at Camden Yards. So what happens? (laughs) The Orioles rip him apart in the morning. He's leaving the arbitration hearing, and he says that the Orioles' late general manager, one of the great people ever in baseball, Roland Heeman, pats Ben on the butt and says, go get him tonight. (laughs) Ben's like, go get him tonight. You just told me all the things I can't do. He pitched really well. Randy Johnson pitched a little bit better. But we're going to get some pretty interesting stories, I would imagine. Maybe not quite that good because I don't think they'll be on the day of a home game. But the fact that our hearings are going to take place during the season does (laughs) raise the interesting quotient. Yeah, it'll be wild for sure. All right, next question comes from Phil Chen. He says, I understand why players want universal designated hitter as a fan. It reduces the variation of the game. I wonder if you have any thoughts about how to increase the opportunities to cancel DH during a game. For example, and Jason Stark has has some examples of this too, but these are Phil's ideas. Change the pitcher before the third inning and cancel the DH or cancel the DH to allow a reliever pitch less than three batters. Phil, these are good ideas, and I'm going to refer back to Jason just as Tim did. Jason Stark is the person who invented a rule that I believe one day might be adopted. It's called the double hook rule, and they're experimenting with it in the minor leagues. And the way it works, you take the starting pitcher out, you lose the DH for the rest of the game, hence the double hook. The hook goes to the pitcher, he's out of the game, and then you lose the DH as well. Double hook. Now, the idea of this and it's brilliant, if you ask me, is to restore the importance of starting pitching because you'd be much more reluctant and hesitant to take out your starting pitcher if you know you're losing the DH. And it would infuse a different level of strategy. It would be really interesting. Now, the ideas you suggested, Phil, are along the same lines. We're really kind of thinking alike here. But Jason's idea, to me, is the simplest variation of this and one that would be very easy for people to understand And I think even more effective than just doing it after three innings because you'd have the incentive to keep your starting pitcher in the game and then there'd be a situation perhaps, say, in the sixth inning, starting pitcher is starting to fade, but the DH is coming up the next inning and you've got a choice and that would be kind of fun and it would restore some of the strategy that has been lost with the adoption of the universal DH. Yeah, it's kind of the best of both worlds, I think, because you have, in a way, added strategy beyond what you used to have in the National League. And if they could do it in both leagues eventually, I I think we'd really be on to something and something fun with baseball. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, all right, next question is from the voicemail line. Hi there, this is Fletcher, a Braves fan living in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm not a fan of the idea of banning the shift outright. Baseball is a game, a competition, and teams need every tool at their disposal in order to win as many games as possible. Having said that, could the MLB look overseas for a solution to this issue? In the game of Australian football, they limit the number of substitutions teams can make of their players throughout the game. Could something like that come for the shift in MLB? Say, for instance, you can only shift 27 times since there are 27 outs per game. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. and love the show. Thanks, guys. Fletcher, I like your thought process. It's interesting for sure. And what you're suggesting almost would be the equivalent of the limit on mound visits, right? You have only five mound visits for a game or six, and then you'd be saying we can only shift X many times. Now, one, you'd have to define what a shift is, and it would have to be really strictly defined in that situation. And while I like the strategic element of it, to me, it's a little bit confusing, a little bit complicated for the average fan to comprehend. Well, I don't know that we want to be counting to 27. And mound visits aren't as important as shifts, so we can count along with them, and I don't even know that anybody really pays attention. I'm never sitting at a game, well, maybe once in a while I'm sitting at a game thinking, hmm, they've only got one left or two left. So you can have it on the scoreboard, like mound visits. I guess you'd have to find 27 spots and we can count it down. But I just don't know that that's the way to go. What I would prefer to see is what I think we're going to see, which is some kind of restrictions on the shift. And what I would expect would happen would be two fielders on each side of the base, their feet on the dirt instead of on the grass, so you can't have the third baseman like Manny Machado playing right field anymore. That is what I think is coming, and I'm anxious to see whether it would have an actual effect because there is a lot of skepticism within the game about whether that would make a difference or not. I wonder when they'll have to, like, for instance, if you have to have two people on either side of the base, is that when the pitcher goes into his delivery? Is it when the pitcher uh, releases the ball? Because you could have a situation where a player starts just on the other side of the bag and kind of starts sprinting with the pitch kind of thing. I don't, I don't know. It'll be That'll be interesting, Ken, to see how teams adapt to, to maximize their fielding with those rules in place. We'll see how that is. All right, next question's from Nick. He says, why do the owners and players need to agree upon another draft or inter- for international players? Why can't international players just be included in the Rule 4 draft for people that know Rule 4 being the regular baseball draft? In basketball, international players can enter the NBA draft. MLB may have to extend the number of rounds accordingly, and there would be one different slot value for all players. Thoughts? Ooh, this is a tough one, Nick. The international draft and the idea of it being separate from the domestic draft, one reason for that would be that the systems of entry, the way to become a baseball player, are entirely different in the United States and Canada versus many of the Latin American countries. 
There's no high school feeder system. There's no college feeder system. The players work with trainers. They go to the academies run by teams. It's just an entirely different way of going about it. Now, you have that. You have the historical differences that exist, as I just mentioned. And I know that the NBA does have an international element to its draft. It's in the same draft, as you said. But those players, from what I understand, and I could be wrong, and if you're an NBA fan, please forgive me. Those players, many of them are professional already in foreign countries. And some of them are high school age. But the NBA, players can go, not anymore, but from that age group, that area, to the NBA. Now we see the one-and-dones, and you can go rather quickly. Baseball's different. Development is different. It usually takes a year or two, even for the best college players. So, to me, we're talking apples and oranges. The NBA is not like Major League Baseball, and the real argument is whether an international draft is necessary for baseball. I wrote a long article with Maria Torres back in January in which an agent named Ulysses Cabrera, he works for Octagon, suggested that a draft was not necessary if baseball wanted to just clean up the corruption in some of these countries. They could do that. Baseball believes the draft is the best way to do that, and that's where the difference has come in and why it became such a contentious issue in the latter part of the labor negotiations. But ultimately, I do expect we're going to see an international draft, and yes, it will be separate from the domestic draft. You'll see a difference in the top signing bonuses as well. Why? Because of what I said before. There are feeder systems that exist in this country and Canada to a certain extent that give teams more confidence of the players that they're drafting that they will be stars because these guys in the international draft sign younger, they don't have the same confidence. Now, this is a good argument too because look at some of the great players in the game right now. Tatis, Guerrero, Soto. They signed at young ages. They clearly should have received big money because of what they've accomplished, and yet the way the system is designed, they don't get as much as the domestic draftees. I'd like to see it even out. I don't know that it's going to happen right away. All right. The next question comes from Dave Schwartz on email. He says, hey, Ken, I consider your weekly podcast a must listen. Thank you, Dave, for that. And my question's about Mike Trout. He says he's undoubtedly a generational talent, but because of injuries, he hasn't played a full season since 2016. He's now in his 30s. He's owed $333 million over the next nine years. And although baseball is a team game, the Angels rarely have been anything more than an average team since his arrival in the big leagues. Is there any point where one might consider Trout's contract more of a burden on the Angels than a benefit? Would they be better off trading him for a mega package of prospects and saving a third of a billion dollars in salary rather than crossing their fingers and hoping this is the year that he can finally stay healthy? I will add to this that you wrote a story today, Ken, that you are a believer in the Angels. So this is perfect timing for this question. I would say a modest believer, Tim. Let's not get carried away and call me a believer. I would say a sort of believer. Now, Dave, you raise an interesting point, and frankly, I haven't thought much about it because he is signed for nine more years. I believe the number is $319 million. but whether it's 319 or 333 as you said, it's a lot of money. It's over 300 And yes, at some point, maybe the Angels look at this, but not yet. What they want to do is win with Mike Trout. That's the whole modus operandi of the team, with Trout and with Otani, and 
Trout right now is entering his age 30 season. He'll be 31 in August. Come his age 33, 34, 35 seasons, you might be looking at something different, but Artie Moreno, the owner, signed him to be a lifetime angel. That was the point here. And that's what they want. Keep in mind also, he has a full no-trade clause, so he'd have to approve anything. Is there a point, or might there come a point, when Mike Trout is so miserable and so fed up with losing that he's going to want out? I guess that's conceivable. Not really his personality, but sure, that's possible. That said, they put together a presentable team this year. Now, I don't know how far they're going to go and how well they're going to do. I made the case today in my column that you can look at this and it looks a little bit better than it has in years past. But we've said that before. So I don't know where they end up this year, but let's say they take a step forward and make the playoffs. That's a big step for them. They haven't been in the playoffs since 2014. Mike Trout, for heaven's sake, has never been part of a winning playoff game. They got swept in 14. Yep. So that's the first step. Ultimately, if things don't work in the next few years, I imagine we'll hear more talk along these lines. I just don't know that the Angels will ever do it. All right, you mentioned Tatis in the last answer, and the next question is about that. It's from uh, Jim, and he says, thanks for the great pod. Tatis, please don't tell me he suffered his latest wrist injury while training. Fans are well aware that he rolled a motorcycle during the offseason, and to me, this is when it happened. But whenever it happened, his first duty should have been to alert the team and have them check it out, not wait until a physical as spring training starts. Truly unprofessional, immature move for him not to disclose and now his team and fans are once again waiting for his return. He did nothing for his shoulder either. With his huge contract, should he not be paid until he is activated due to a non-playing injury? Surely there must be a clause in his contract regarding this, or is this just another case of a 22-year-old getting $300 million and being unaware of his obligations? Uh, Ken, one question I had on top of this is how the lockout plays into this whole thing. Well, Tim, I'm going to start there, actually, okay. because Jim raises some interesting points there. But the one about his failure, Tatis' failure to communicate with the team, that cannot be pinned on him. And the reason it cannot be pinned on him is because the league ruled at the start of the lockout that players and teams and teams and players could not communicate with each other. Now, is it possible through back channels Tatis could have passed word along? Yes, I guess that is possible. But at the same time, of all the issues here with Tatis's injury, that kind of is the least of it. He was going to need surgery, and he got surgery, and maybe they could have addressed it earlier if teams were allowed to talk to players, allowed to have their doctors see players, but that was the league's rule. That was the approach they took in the lockout. It was one of their pressure tactics, and we see here an unfortunate result of that approach. Now, when did he get hurt? How did he get hurt? If you recall, when he had his news conference upon arriving at spring training, he was asked about a motorcycle accident, and his response was, which one? Clearly, it seems that this did occur in a motorcycle accident, but there is no proof of that, at least no proof that he has offered, and no proof, most importantly, that the club has. Now, standard player contracts include clauses that prevent players from participating in sports or activities that could impair their ability to work. Riding a motorcycle and getting in a motorcycle accident would certainly qualify. But because the Padres don't know that for sure, they can't be sure that's how the injury was caused, they're not going to pursue any 
course of action against Tatis and the fact that he's going to miss months and not years further dissuades them from really taking any revenge in any kind of way. So the whole thing is unfortunate, obviously. He said, or at least his manager, Bob Melvin, said hey, the days of Tatis riding motorcycles are probably over. That's a good thing because clearly here it didn't help if it caused the injury. We don't know, but if it didn't, he shouldn't be doing it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. We need Tatis on the field, that's for sure. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Um, all right, next one. We have, This is a kind of a fun question from voicemail. Hey, Ken. This is Reggie King from Charlotte, North Carolina. What are some fun storylines you are looking forward to in April and May? The lockout has taken the fun out of baseball for the past four months. I want baseball to be fun again. Does Major League Baseball have a director of fun? <laughs> Thanks for taking my question. Reggie, as far as I know, there is no director of fun. Might be a good thing to add. You have a point there. Now, I know the lockout took the fun out of the game for a lot of us during that period when it was going on, 99 days long. But Reggie, I've got to tell you, the lockout is over, man. We need to get past it. And we do have the game back. We have a full season, which is all I wanted all along. I felt that the season was compromised. 
fans would have a legitimate beef. Reporters like myself would have been legitimately upset. But now that we're playing 162, in my mind, the lockout in the rearview mirror stands as a nuisance. Not much more than that. It didn't really affect things. Now it's going to affect the season to some extent. The shortened spring training that's going to come into play, we might see more injuries. So that's not good. But overall, at least we got 162. Now, you asked about fun storylines. Man, this sport is full of fun storylines. I wrote about one the other day. Julio Rodriguez, Mariner's top prospect. This kid's going to come up at some point, maybe even to start the season. And he's going to be someone to watch. Now, we all know prospects are no sure thing. We saw that last year with the Mariners and Jared Kelenic. But he's an exciting one. Bobby Witt Jr. with Kansas City is another one. Then we have a prospect who last year made his debut and now will be playing his first full season. That would be Wander Franco of Tampa Bay. And I am excited to see what this guy can do over a full year. On the veteran side of it, uh, let's look at what's going on with the New York Mets. You saw it yesterday. Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom pitched in the same game. Now, that's not going to happen during the regular season, barring some kind of weird circumstance. But the fact that they're on the same team, I would say that's fun. The Freddie Freeman-Matt Olsen saga. Freeman now with the Dodgers. Olsen now with the Braves. That's going to be fun to follow, too, because the Braves clearly... Well, I shouldn't say clearly, but it seemed that the Braves preferred Olsen. They went hard for him once they figured they couldn't sign Freeman. Some might argue they didn't make the effort to sign Freeman that they should have. Well, now we get to compare these two. Freeman for six years in L.A., Olsen for five in Atlanta. A fun team, the Blue Jays. Flag Guerrero Jr., it starts there. Tasker Hernandez, a fun guy. Bo Bichette, this is a fun team. And they've got some interesting additions as well. Kevin Gossman, Yusei Kikuchi, and of course... Matt Chapman at third base. And I'll leave you with a couple more. Correa and his whole saga and how that plays out in Minnesota and how the Astros fare without him. That's kind of an interesting, fun storyline. And then the one that just developed seemingly overnight, Albert Pujols back in St. Louis. So that's about, I don't know, seven or eight fun storylines. And frankly, I could think of a whole bunch more. So I know we're all mad at the lockout. We were mad at the owners. Some people were mad at the players, too. Understand all of it. But come on now. We need to move forward. I don't want to be talking to you like I talk to my children. We have to push forward and enjoy the season. Plenty of fun in that answer. All right, next question. It's Chris Jenkins. He says, the new CBA really discouraged tanking, didn't it? A little sarcasm there. It says, Reds have traded their number two starter, starting third baseman, starting left field. They're sure there's more to come. There's fans here calling for Castellini to sell the team. Believe he's not committing to winning. Four or five year rebuild. Go for it in 20. And then they stayed in the race last year. And now it's time to rebuild again. Reds front office and ownership group sure going to lose their fans. Feels like a vicious cycle. Reds and other small market teams build players to let them go to richer teams when they can't afford to keep them. It's more of a point, Ken, than than a question, but you know where he's getting at with that. I do know where he's getting at. And Chris, the point I would make in response to that is this is not a CBA question entirely. This is an ownership question. A decision that was made by Bob Castellini, the owner of the Reds, to take this course. Now, you can build in certain safeguards in the CBA, and they've tried to do that to some extent, a very limited extent, with regard to 
the draft order and the lottery and all that's going to happen there. But at some point, it's on the owner. It's on the owner of Cincinnati. It's on the owner of Baltimore. It's on the owner of Pittsburgh. It's on these owners and others, Oakland, to try. That's the point of sports. Try your best to win. What the players objected to so much in these negotiations, what a lot of fans objected to, and what I object to, is this notion that you could just throw a team out there and not really give a full effort. Now, we know some teams can't spend as much as others, but there are also teams that seemingly don't want to really improve their clubs at all or take any meaningful steps to doing that. That thinking has to stop, and maybe it takes a purge of some of these owners, and it can only happen naturally. Nobody can force them out, I don't believe. But that might be the step that is necessary to kind of end this practice because you don't see it with every low-revenue team. I'm sorry. Tampa Bay, trying. Milwaukee, trying. Others as well. But Miami, which is trying a little bit harder. Pittsburgh, Baltimore. Cleveland hasn't done much this particular offseason. And I named some others as well. Oakland. At some point, the owner has to step up. All right. And not to end things on a down note, but we, we finish things off with another voicemail. This one from Kyle. What's up, fellas? My name is Kyle. Genuinely curious about something. Back in 2016, when they signed that last CBA, Right away, right away, we saw writers and people within the game talking about a most likely, not even potential, a good chance of a lockout in 2021, you know, going into 2022. Just curious what you think about 2026. Thanks for all your work during the lockout, too. It was a lot of fun to listen and learn new things about it, as crazy as it was. Take care, fellas. Kyle, this is a great point you make, and you're absolutely right that the moment that deal was signed in 2016, agents in particular were upset with it. Writers like myself questioned it, and you could see almost immediately that there was going to be trouble on the horizon. I don't see the current outcome or the latest outcome in quite the same light. The players did make some gains. The pre-arbitration pool, something new, the bonus pool, that will help players, the raising of the minimum salaries, the luxury tax thresholds were increased at a better rate than they were in the 2016 agreement. And there are some other things as well that we've discussed, the anti-tanking measures, though limited, the somewhat helpful measures to address service time manipulation, a number of things. So this was not a clear loss for the players, though they didn't get maybe their biggest goals, revenue sharing, free agency, changes in salary arbitration as well. That said, I am really interested to see what happens to this sport over the next five years. Because if the sport can figure out how to improve the product on the field, which I believe it will at least try to do, the revenue is going to come and it's going to come in a big way. Now, the television revenue locally there might be some issues there because of the cord cutting and the streaming that has taken place in recent years. But just today, we saw news that MLB just reached a $125 million sponsorship deal with Capital One. This sport is going to expand, I believe, during this CBA by two teams that will cost maybe $1.5 to $2 billion each as an expansion fee. We're going to see patches on uniforms. That's more money. Expanded playoffs. That's more money. Gambling, more money. So what I'm saying is 
the sport could be headed for a really good five-year period from a financial perspective. And then the question becomes, how have the players been treated during those five years? Has the average salary stayed flat or decreased? Or has there been an accompanying and appropriate increase in salaries as pertaining to revenue? If there isn't, then yes, we might see more problems. But there is no reason for that to take place. There's no reason why the sport shouldn't be very healthy and healthy for all. Now, it's never going to be exactly like the players might want it. I get that. But at the same time, we need better relations between these parties. We need a fairer treatment of players. And I'm suggesting, yes, that it was unfair the way they were treated in many ways in the last CBA. And we need free agency to be robust. Now, it has been robust at the top end for quite some time, and it will always be. But I'm talking about for maybe middle-tier players and lesser players. There's plenty of money in this sport. There's plenty of money to go around. That's a good way to end it. If you want to get involved next week on the show, you can get your voicemail on. Get your voicemail in at 646-543-7072. Or you can email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And I mentioned it at the beginning. Starting next week, we'll be coming to you five days a week on this feed. The mailbag will drop every Monday with me and Ken. Tuesdays are Starkville with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville. On Wednesday, this is a new show we're adding this year. It's the Roundtable. Grant Brisby, Andy McCullough, and a rotating third chair. We'll focus in on some of the big topics facing the game each week. Thursdays, it's the 3-0 show with Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, and Britt Giroli. And finally, Fridays are Derek Van Riper back again, DVR along with Keith Law. If you want to read all the great writers of The Athletic, you can subscribe right now. One of the best deals of the year going on. You can subscribe for $1 per month for up to six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. That's going to do it for this edition. Ken, good luck with the rest of spring training. We are almost to opening day. Yes, Tim. Thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to it. All right. Have a great week, everyone.